Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Scott Ritter, a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and former chief U.N. weapons ex- inspector in Iraq from 1991 to 1998. He is the author of a, a number of books, including Iraq Confidential, Target Iran, and Scorpion King. We'll be discussing the state of the U.S. empire and how he sees the current trajectory of U.S. foreign policy in light of the hotspots that are flaring up around the world, everywhere from Syria and Iran to Ukraine and Taiwan. Thanks for being with us, Mr. Ritter. How has 2021 been treating you so far? Well, me personally, 2021 is doing just fine. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're hopefully coming out of a pandemic and, um, you know, I have employment. My wife has employment. My kids have employment and we have our health. So uh, not too bad. Uh, as an American citizen, um, it's interesting times. We have a new president uh, who's embarking on, um, you know, new approaches of uh, interacting with the world. And, um, you know, there, 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 there might be some problems with that. Uh, we, you know, I, I don't like to prejudge outcomes, um, you know, uh, but, um, you know, one, one, I think in, when, when examining, you know, there's a state of affairs in the world, um, you know, you need to draw upon past experiences and history uh, to understand, um, you know, how things work uh, vis-a-vis one another. And, um, whether or not policy uh, formulations are realistic or maybe a little too pie in the sky and uh, you know, what the, um, what the outcomes can be. And uh, right now I'm a, I'm, I'm a little pessimistic, but like I said, you know, it's early on in the, in, in, in the Biden administration, then um, he, he has some time left to, uh, to prove whether or not um, things he wants to accomplish can be accomplished. I'm I'm kind of with you on the on the pessimism, and uh, I think a great place to to start uh, would maybe to set the overarching context would be your latest op-ed published just a few days ago on, on RT. You write about America as a um, quasi-imperial power, which sees it, itself as exceptional and indispensable. The so-called American-led uh, rules-based international order has become nothing more than a fantasy, which in reality is a U.S.-compelled global hegemony. Countless intellectuals and analysts have been forecasting the decline and or fall of the American empire for decades, uh, myself included, and many of my past guests, uh, ranging from Morris Berman to Johann Galtung. How would you kind of describe the road we are on now as Americans, as an American republic, and as the American empire? Well, I personally believe that the United States has been on a wrong path since um, 1993, when uh, came into being. Um, we had a, um, you know, I, from a foreign policy uh, perspective, um, I think the United States gets not a pass, but um, uh, I can comprehend the uh, the justification for policy that took place between the end of the Second World War and the end of the Cold War. There's a logic there. There's an inherent logic uh, that. Um, you know, justifies um, policies that are premised upon a bipolar world where the United States is at the head of weakened liberal democracies. And I emphasize weakened um, because the United States was the, the leader and, and, and part of the policies of the United States during that time was to sustain this leadership by, uh, by sustaining the hegemony of, of, of the United States over these weakened liberal democracies. Uh, to keep them strong, to keep them unified uh, in face of, you know, what we deem to be the threat of global communism uh, from the Soviet Union and uh, communist China. 
Um, and so, again, I, obviously, history shows that this that, that there was a flawed implementation of this uh, plan of, uh, of of this policy. Uh, you know, Vietnam jumps out, and so there's a host of other experiences. But at the end of the day, when one speaks of a national security strategy premised on the need to maintain a balance of power between an American-led bloc um, in opposition to a Soviet-led bloc, um, there's a logic uh, that, 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 that exists. With the end of the Cold War, this logic no longer existed. And there was a period of time where, under the presidency of George Herbert Walker Bush, um, the United States considered you know, embracing a new world order. It's ill-defined. No one knows exactly what that would have been. But roughly speaking, the concept would have been that the United States would have ceded its role as the world's sole remaining superpower, um, not, not subordinating, but transferring um, much of the um, the global leadership to a world body where the United States would have ruled supreme regardless, the, the United Nations Security Council. Uh, the United States was the world's indispensable nation at the time. Um, and it would not have been difficult for the United States to transfer um, you know, some of this leadership roles and responsibilities to a United Nations organization that would have been looking to the United States for leadership regardless. Um, and then the United States could have worked uh, together with the world to develop a truly functioning multipolar uh, reality, because that inevitably was the outcome. Well, once the Cold War ended, um, you know, Francis Fukuyama was wrong. History did not end. History just began. We just began a new cycle of history. Uh, you cannot suppress the will of the Brazilian people, the will of the South African people, the will of the Indian people, the will of the Chinese people, the will of the Russian people in a post-Soviet environment. The, the, these people cannot be suppressed. You can't suppress Europe. You can't suppress anybody. Uh, everybody aspires to, you know, better their life. And uh, as a result, you know, as, as they do get better, they, they are going to acquire a certain geopolitical uh, gravity, uh, a mass that, that, that creates, you know, their, their own ability to, to have centrifugal uh, authority where things start to revolve around them. That's a multipolar world. And that's a good thing. And the United States still could have been the principal sun around which these other centers of gravity rotated. That would have been, um, you know, the new world order. But we didn't accept that. We couldn't. We weren't, we weren't apparently not confident enough in our, uh, in our abilities. Instead, we, uh, we coined this concept of the indispensable nation, that we can't rely on the United Nations, that we are the nation that the world must look to, uh, independent of these um, international organizations. And, you know, for eight years of the Clinton administration, we, we fumbled around and, 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 and just behaved poorly as a nation, very poorly. We behaved poorly uh, in Iraq. We be behaved poorly at the United Nations. We behave poorly vis-a-vis -vis Russia. We behave poorly vis-a-vis uh, -vis Europe and NATO. Uh, why continue a military alliance uh, premised on the notion of containing um, and deterring uh, Soviet military aggression when the Soviet Union no longer exists and you don't view Russia as a military threat and Russia doesn't uh, position itself as a military threat? So uh, during those eight years, I think we we, we we blew it. And then, of course, came 9-11. And... Um, 
again, once again, um, you know, having called ourselves the indispensable nation, having been attacked, we, we pretended as if we were the only nation that mattered in the world. We declared war on the world, global war on terror. Um, and we basically said that we will dictate outcomes to nations around the world regardless. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm a big believer in uh, Newton's, um, you know, third law of, uh, of, of, of physics, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, I apply this to geopolitics. And when the United States acts in an aggressive manner, there will be a pushback, a reaction. And because of our post 9-11 um, you know, behaviors, the world pushed back and, and, and we see these multipolar uh, realities starting to emerge. Um, and, and then Obama comes along and, you know, he inherits Bush's, um, you know, war on the world. And Obama tries to articulate a, um, a different stance, but his, his deeds don't match his words. We continue to behave as the indispensable nation, as the only nation that counts. And then Trump comes along and, uh, now, now, the, let me preface this by saying at the end of World War II, in order to sustain this, um, this hegemony over the uh, Western liberal democracies, we created a series of institutions, uh, the most important of which deal with the economies of the world, the, the World uh, Trade Organization, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. And we got buy-in from all these institutions um, uh, to, to collectively you know, deal with um, economic issues with the United States at the helm. Um, and then we have a series of alliances that are designed to retard the growth of Germany and Japan um, to make them dependent. Uh, they say codependent, but there's no codependency because we're not dependent upon them. Dependent upon us totally. This is the rules-based international order that people speak of, and it was a it was necessary during this period of time because the United States was the only nation that could pull it all together. Um, but at the end of the Cold War, the, the, the rules-based international order lost its reason for being that the United States can no longer justify, you know, having this much power um, in, in, in its person. It needed to share this power, and it didn't. Um, and this created a lot of problems here at home and abroad. Uh, and it led to the rise of um, a, a, a political approach towards America's interface with the rest of the world uh, that uh, became Trumpism, uh, a rejection of this international rules-based uh, order. Um, I mean, you know, Trump rejected NATO. Trump rejected uh, our, our involvement in these other, he didn't like the World Trade Organization. He didn't like any of this. He said, he, he went to an extreme. He said, this is all about America, America first. But he was at least honest enough to say, the rest of the world, you can do what you want. I respect leaders that want to take care of their nations. I respect leaders that say, Russia first or something. You guys do that. We're just going to outcompete you. That was his approach. Uh, not, a, not a sound approach, but it was a different approach. It was a rejection of walking away from. And it, I believe that it, it better reflected the reality of America's um, you know, role in the world, that uh, we were no longer able to justify being at the head of this rules-based international order because we didn't respect it anymore. There was no need for this, this, this order. Um, Biden has come along and he has decided to reinvent history. He has decided to go back in time, um, not to the Obama age, not to a rules based order that at least seeded some sort of, um, you know, under Obama, we attempted to bring Russia into the rules based order. 
Um, we even did that prior under Bush and even under Clinton, we tried to bring them in. The idea wasn't to uh, be you know, offset against their the, uh, a, a, a polarity in opposition. But the idea was that we would bring in these former foes into this rules-based order where we would, of course, retain hegemony over them. That was the idea. We would control them. Um, that's global empire. Um, and, and, and that was the approach of the Obama administration. They were big on the, the rules-based international order, but only insofar as Russia, China, and the other nations were absorbed. Um, near the end of the Obama administration, we started to see uh, the reality that these nations weren't willing to be absorbed. And then Trump comes along and just says, the heck with the whole thing. We're not trying to absorb anybody. We're just going to compete with you straight up. Now, Biden's come in. He says, no, 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 no. We need this international order. But he's not going back to the absorption phase of the Obama administration. He's going back to square one, where in order to justify this rules-based international order, we have to have an enemy. We have to have counterpart. And we're now recreating Russia and China as this, this counterpolarity. Uh, we've all but ceded equal status to China. Um, and it's funny that we have to cede it. China seized equal status. Uh, you know, and, and Russia is taking a second seat to nobody. Um, and, and I think the Biden administration recognizes this, but rather than dealing with them as equals, trying to say, okay, you know, the United States is no longer the sole remaining superpower. We are a very powerful nation uh, in a very complex world where there are, are other powerful nations. Therefore, we need to work with each other to, uh, to get along, to survive. Um, no, we want to retain hegemony. We want to be the big dog, uh, at, at least in our block. And so we are trying to revive the post-World War II world where we demand that our allies uh, subordinate themselves to us. That's what the rules-based international order is all about. It's about submission by the lesser powers to the greater power of the United States. Um, that's just not going to work. It's doomed to fail because the world's not willing to submit. The world's, there's no need for the world to submit. Uh, the world wants to uh, you know, succeed on their own terms. So this is why I call it fiction. It's a very dangerous situation um, because it's, it's, a, it's an artificial construct that has a uh, no chance of getting any leverage uh, policy-wise, and yet the Biden administration is throwing all of its eggs into this basket. Um, and when you, you know, when you fail diplomatically, um, remember, war is an extension of politics. Diplomacy is the, the face of, 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 of geopolitics. Uh, when you fail there, what are you left with? The military option. And so I, I see Biden uh, claiming that he wants to use diplomacy to pursue you know, this rules-based international order. But it's going to fail. And at the end of the day, the U.S. military is going to be called upon uh, to pick up the slack and uh, picking up the slack against Russia and China is um, you're not picking up any slack there. They're going to slap you around a little bit. Uh, doesn't mean we're going to get beat, but it doesn't mean we're going to win outright. Yeah, that kind of segues into my next question. You mentioned previously the historical cycle, let's say, ended in the 90s. Uh, um, and what usually happens is kind of like classic history where the empire in its decline begins to act with a lot of hubris and, and wars uh, begin. And, you know, we have these powder kegs that, that exist that are created. We saw prior to World War One, Germany's economic and geopolitical rise led to confrontation with the British Empire. And as you've been mentioning, we've recently seen Washington up the ante against Russia by sending support right now as we speak to, to Ukraine, which seems to be agitating to start a war again in the Donbass. 
Uh, we had uh, the recent declaration by Secretary of State Blinken that Crimea will never be returned to Russia when it already is de facto part of uh, Russia. <laughs> Washington is accelerating its presence uh, in Syria. We're reading about uh, how U.S. troops uh, illegally in Syria, uh, are, they're bringing in convoys, they're st stealing Syrian uh, oil and wheat and shipping it off to uh, Iraq. There's the intense pressure being put on Iran. Uh, and of course, and, and there's China. So I thought maybe in terms of like going forward, the conflicts that we might be seeing, uh, I thought we could look at the Middle East, Russia and China. Uh, since you're uh, very familiar with the Middle East, perhaps we could uh, start there and just get your thoughts. You know, what's the, what are the most pressing developments in the region there uh, right now, in your mind, we have, as I said, everything from the renewed attempts at Syrian regime change, uh, Israeli expansionism to the full court press on Iran and the war on Yemen that doesn't seem to to relent. So perhaps if you could just give us a, a snapshot, you know, what, what's what's important to think about in the Middle East? Well, I think the most important thing we have to recognize in the Middle East is that the United States is a power in decline and um, Iran is a regional power um, in, in the ascendancy. Um, now, <laughs> believe me, when we say America is a power in decline, our power is great. And when we say Iran is a power in ascendancy, their power is much less. So it's not as though we're talking about equals here. But the reason why I bring that up is that, you know, once geopolitically, once you start to get a trend in a direction, um, it's very difficult to reverse that trend. So when we say America is a power in decline in the Middle East, uh, it, we're more than likely not going to reverse this and suddenly become a power that is dominant once again, because there's a, a myriad of reasons why we're a power in decline. Uh, we're a power in decline because we've spent the last 20 some odd years uh, engaged in forever wars in uh, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, wars that have sapped us uh, economically, wars that have um, destroyed our military. I mean, I've written about this in the past where, where you know, we, we took this this military machine that was um, unbeatable uh, at the end of the Cold War, and we proved that against Iraq. I mean, it was it was a joke the the the, the Gulf War, um, and we proved it again in 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 two thousand three with the ease in which we 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 defeated Iraq. Um, our military uh, it was, was was unsurpassed. No nobody could touch it, um, and yet we've now spent nearly 20 years since the invasion and occupation of Iraq, uh, retooling our military solely uh, to deal with um, these, these low-intensity conflicts. Um, we no longer uh, engage in the kind of large-scale combined arms training necessary to, uh, to fight a, a peer or near-peer opponent uh, like China or Russia or Iran. Um, our military is just not geared to do that anymore. Uh, we, we also took a military that during the Cold War was capable of rapidly deploying anywhere in the world. I mean, you know, we had prepositioned ships. We had massive airlift capabilities. We exercised it in Europe with Reforger, um, the, you know, the, the return of forces to Germany where we could fly 200,000 troops into Germany within 10 days, fall in on uh, equipment and be ready to fight the Soviets. Um, right now, it takes us six months to, to prep up an armored brigade uh, for deployment to Europe. Uh, that's not rapid. Uh, it's not effective, and it's not uh, of a size um, sufficient to have any meaning. I mean, uh, you, so we send an armor brigade, five thousand troops. Whoop de do. Uh, they'll be dead in a week, and there won't be anything to replace them. I mean, that's the reality of modern war, and we're not ready to fight modern war today. Um, 
And so, but now we, so that's one of the reasons why we're seeing our, our decline is that we've become exhausted by the Middle East. The other thing is that the Middle East, frankly speaking, is not essential to uh, American survival as a nation. I mean, there's what we have going on right now in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria are, um, are, 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 are pure you know, ego-based projects. Uh, <laughs> we don't need Syria to survive. We don't need Syrian oil to survive. We don't need Iraq to survive. We don't need Afghanistan to survive. But we've invested national um, you know, pride into these. And um, we have a political problem, a domestic political problem, where no president is willing to stand up to his military. Because keep in mind, if you're, you know, 20 years is a career in the military. You could have enlisted in, after 9-11, and your career is done knowing only post-9-11 um, you know, fighting. Uh, that's your career. Your career has been defined by these, these wars in the Middle East. Um, and it's not just your career, everything about your career, how we supply you, how we train you, how we equip you, how, you know, how we build doctrine. Everything is focused solely on this. Careers were built on this. And yes, you, know, you might have uh, you know, some generals out there whose careers are almost done, but all those lieutenant colonels and majors and colonels that want to become those generals, um, they're not going to walk away from their experiences. They're not going to allow those experiences to, to, be, to be debased. Those experiences must continue to be seen as the single most important thing in the world, or else their careers mean nothing. Um, and so we have a military that's trapped in this cycle, not because of legitimate national security reasons, but because of ego, because of hubris. Um, and, and so all of this conspires to push us down. Meanwhile, we've been there for 20 years. And again, Newton's uh, third law, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We've been putting a lot of action in there and we're getting a lot of reaction. And uh, that reaction is not uh, conducive to America's stain uh, in the Middle East. Iran has developed a very capable deterrent. Um, notice that we're not bombing Iran. And you have to ask yourself why. And the, the short answer is just pointed Al-Assad Air Base and what took place there in January of, uh, of, of 2020. Um, you know, Iran fired a dozen or so uh, precision-guided uh, ballistic missiles that hit their targets within five feet of their intended destination. That's pretty darn accurate. Um, they destroyed the base. And Iran has thousands of these missiles that can reach out and touch us all over the Middle East in the region. Uh, so any action against Iran that was you know, of, of, of any scale would engender a reaction that would uh, punish us in a way that, that we're not willing to, to absorb. Not only are we not willing to absorb, our regional allies cannot absorb. If you're an oil-based income uh, nation like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, understand that a war with Iran will mean that your entire oil infrastructure will be destroyed and you will cease to exist as a modern nation state. End of story. There's no debating this. It's done. They know this. So, it's difficult for an empire to play its ultimate card, you know, the military card, when the consequences of that are devastating uh, for your empire. So, you know, we, we see the United States seeking now, you know, to, to, to rebuild, redefine relationships, um, but it's failing because the, world, the, the, the region is pushing back. Uh, you know, Biden can talk about doubling down on Syria. One of the realities of, uh, of the United States, and it's one that Bashar al-Assad has uh, brought up and Putin has brought up um, several times. In fact, is any long-serving um, 
you know, uh, opponent of the United States has brought this up, that um, they don't listen to what presidents say. They don't care what presidents say because presidents come and go. A president could come in and whisper sweet nothings in their ear, as Obama did to Iran in 2015 with the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action. Then another president comes in and rips it up. And now another president's coming in saying, well, maybe he wants to come back, but it'll be different. You know, you can't speak of American foreign policy. There is no American foreign policy. We have every four to eight years, this new, actually every four years, because even an eight ter- uh, a two-term president redefines himself in the second term. Uh, so, you know, there's no consistency uh, in policy. Uh, in Syria, um, you know, people talk about what, what Biden's doing right now. Understand that we already did that back in 2011. What, what Obama did in Syria was done on a scale that Biden will never match. And Obama failed. Obama had all the cards in his hands. He had a weakened uh, a Syrian government. There were no Russian forces in play. Uh, Iran was not entrenched. Hezbollah was, was not fully committed. Uh, and there were you know, literally tens of thousands of these um, Islamist extremists who were ready to you know, raise the black flag over Damascus. Those days are gone. The Syrian army has defeated these powers. They're, you know, they're on the verge of reclaiming the totality of the territory. The, uh, Assad is as firmly in control of the situation in Syria as he's ever been. Russia's there. They're not leaving. Iran's there. They're not leaving. Hezbollah's there. They're not leaving. So the United States will fail in Syria. End of story. There's no debating this. It's just a question of how and when we will fail. The same with Iraq. Um, you know, we, we keep saying, well, we're in Iraq today, you know, because Obama, you know, pulled out in, uh, in 2011, pulled out the combat uh, troops. But we came back in 2014 to fight ISIS. Now, most Americans think that we fought ISIS. We didn't. ISIS was fought by the Iranians, by the Iraqis, by the Shia militias that were mobilized. We came in afterwards as a support. Uh, we played a, a, a role, but we weren't the preeminent fighters. Iran was. Iran defeated ISIS. Iran defeated ISIS not only in Iraq, but in Syria. Um, Russia came in and played a big role in helping defeat ISIS in Syria. Uh, our objective um, was, I mean, you know, we, we, we had, you know, we, we, it was counterintuitive what we were doing with ISIS, pushing ISIS out of Iraq so that they could go to Syria to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. Uh, it makes no sense. Uh, but that was really what our policy was. And we see that manifested today where, you know, we, we've, pretty much defeated ISIS. It still exists in Iraq. But in Syria, uh, we're playing a very loose hand because we need these anti-regime forces uh, if we're going to you know, provide anything of substance to our anti-regime policies. Um, it's doomed to fail. We will fail. And right now, we have the, the Iraqi parliament uh, debating once again um, you know, the, the, the prospect of taking the United States out of Iraq. And then there's Afghanistan. But once we, you know, we had a president who recognized that what was going on in Afghanistan was a travesty. I mean, I, you know, Donald Trump was an imperfect person and an imperfect president. But I'll tell you what. The man was the only president in modern history who went to the Pentagon, sat down with all of his generals and called them out for the losers that they were. I mean, here's these generals. They got all their stars. They got their medals. They're there. There's God's gift to the world. And of course, in America, we put them on a pedestal. Everything they say is sacrosanct. Can't, we can't contradict. Generals of the general say it is. It is because there's 
There's no politics in being a general. You're serving your country. It's pure, no, pure politics. And the generals have given the same song and dance to every president. We need more troops. We need more time. We can turn this thing around. And Trump early on bought into that. He said, you need more troops. You need me to loosen up rules of engagement. I'll do whatever you want. And he gave them, he, he, he unleashed them. Um, then he came down, sat with him and said, how are we doing? Oh, no, we need more troops. He said, no, we're getting out. We're done. We're finished. You guys are losers. You're losers. You can't win a war. You're incapable. Of the most honest statement made by an American politician in some time. And he paid a price for it because people say, oh, he's you know, very speaking down to the generals. The generals need to be spoken down to. Generals need to be fired, relieved for incompetence. Nobody's doing that. I mean, if, if I were in the military today as a, as a field grade officer, and my actions caused a document to be generated that was the equivalent of the Special Inspector General's report on Afghanistan, um, I would not only be relieved of command, I would be arrested and prosecuted for criminal incompetence, for dereliction of duty. Um, and yet all the generals who carried, uh, who carried, who, who carried out this, this flawed policy, who lied about this policy, they're getting promoted. They're allowed to retire. There's no consequences for their incompetence. Um, let me tell you how Afghanistan is going to end. Afghanistan's going to end with the American backed government leaders being dragged through the streets of Kabul from the backs of pickup trucks driven by the Taliban. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not. But that's what's going to happen. Um, had we gone forward with this peace plan that the Trump had signed, this would have happened sometime in June or July of this year. Our troops and the Taliban would have taken over. There would be a rapid collapse of the Afghan security forces and the government would have been dragged through the streets. Um, now we're gonna stay, there's gonna be more war. The Taliban's gonna fight us. We're gonna lose thousands of more people. We're gonna spend trillions of more dollars. But at some point in time, an American politician is going to pull the troops out. And when they do, the Afghan government that remains will be dragged through the streets of Kabul, dead, from the back of pickup trucks driven by the Taliban. That is the outcome. There's nothing we can do to change that outcome. Uh, that's what I mean by an empire in decline. Forces are in motion in these countries that will outlast the Biden administration. They will outlast whatever administration comes after the Biden administration. They will outlast whatever administration comes out. The bottom line is, you know, the United States is incapable right now of, um, of sustaining um, policy. Because every policy we seek to implement is the policy not of the nation, but of an individual who's implementing it, not because it's good for the betterment of the American people, but it's for his own political uh, benefit. Uh, therefore, uh, it will collapse when they leave office, another politician will come in. So that's where I see us in the Middle East. We're, we're an empire in decline. That doesn't mean that we're going to go away. America's just not going to go away after a long, long time. Um, but it does mean that our our ability to influence the region, um, the nature of our of, of our interaction, um, is, is going to be altered um, and, and diminished over time. And beyond the Middle East, then we have uh, get your thoughts then on on what some people call the dragon bear, right? Russia, China, you know, Eurasia coming together, uh, you know, Mackinder's heartland <laughs> coming together. Uh, you know, there's NATO now, which seems to know no limits. 
I just read an article recently about uh, incorporating, discussing uh, incorporating India into NATO. Uh, they, 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 they've made inroads in Latin America through the Global Partners Program with uh, Colombia and, and I think Brazil. And now they're trying to form this Asian NATO through the Quad. Um, they're still seeking to incorporate, you know, Ukraine, Georgia, other states on Russia's periphery. Uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov recently declared that relations between Moscow and Brussels, the EU, are are dead. Uh, we're seeing unbridled aggression being unleashed upon uh, Russia. I studied at the Geneva School of Diplomacy, um, and to hear Biden, President Biden, call President Putin a killer is absolutely, I think, off the wall in the total yep. reach of diplomatic uh, protocol. And so we've got now this this rush um, on Ukraine and Crimea. And then there's the China, you know, this, all we hear about today is this Thucydides trap, you know, on the daily news cycle, um, this US-China struggle for world hegemony. And then we have the flashpoints of like Taiwan, South China Sea, the Belt and Road, the tech battle space. And we had that meeting recently in Alaska where China showed that it will not be spoken down to by the US. And right after that, the Kremlin spokesman uh, Peskov recently reiterated the same thing for Russia. Russia will not be spoken down to by the U.S. So how do you see, uh, you know, this this increasing aggression uh, with Russia and China and, you know, whether things can escalate from there towards something, you know, the, the use of nuclear uh, weapons? Well, I'll start with the last part first. Uh, the, the, this, this is what makes all of this so dangerous. To, if it weren't for nuclear weapons. Um, I, I would say that what you have, uh, what the United States is doing is building a series of house, you know, a series of houses of cards. Um, let's start with NATO. NATO cannot fight a war. It is a joke of an organization, a military organization. NATO used to be a very capable defensive organization. Uh, I, I grew up in West Germany. My dad was stationed there, uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and I, I know what I saw. And I saw militaries that were massive uh, and were ready to fight, ready to rumble. Um, and we only got bigger after that. Uh, but at the end of the Cold War, um, while the United States continued to pour hundreds of billions of dollars into its military, um, Europe truly saw the peace dividend. I mean, if you take a look, you know, the British Army of the Rhine used to be a British Army of the Rhine, an army in Germany on the Rhine ready to fight the Russians. That then was reduced to a core, capable of being reinforced, reinforced to an army. Um, there were more people in Germany during the Cold War than exist in the British mil- military today. I think the military is 80, 84,000 people, and they're talking about shrinking it further. Um, the British can't even get an armored brigade put together to send to Poland. Um, it's a joke. It's a joke. Uh, the Germans, in order to get their battalion combat groups sent up to the, to the Baltics, had to cannibalize their, um, you know, their, 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 their armory. They, they can't get an armored brigade out of garrison. That's how bad they are. Uh, the French can't deploy troops to Africa without American airlift support. And we're talking about light infantry, um, not, not heavy uh, combat troops. Um, you know, and, and let's not even talk about the Italians, the Spanish, and everybody else. They're, they're incapable of power projection. They can defend their soil. They can defend, you know, areas around them. But the concept of NATO is a viable military organization is a joke, Um, whereas the concept of Russia as a viable military power is not a joke. Um, You know, the the, the Russians did the world a favor at the end of the Cold War by reorganizing their military 
away from these massive you know armies of maneuver to uh, reflect the, the new reality that there, there, the, there wasn't going to be a large-scale ground war in Europe anymore, uh, that Russia was probably going to be called upon to fight a series of conflicts on its peripheria, where brigade-sized uh, you know, uh, military formations were, you know, combined armed brigade was going to be the, the, that. And, and they did that. And then they watched NATO expand and expand and expand to its borders. And they had a horrible experience in Georgia. Yes, they won the 2008 Georgia War, but it was embarrassing. Uh, the Georgians outperformed them at the small unit level. Uh, the Georgians outperformed them tactically. Uh, the Georgians just didn't have the mass necessary to, uh, to, 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 to stand up and, and, and continue the fight. And they got crushed in the end. But it was embarrassing for Russia. But Russia learned from that. And today, what has Russia done? They've reorganized. Uh, when I lived in Germany, you know, there were two armies that we all were aware of. One was the 1st Guards Tank Army and the other one was the 20th Combined Arms Army. Those are the ones that are coming down to fold the gap. And we're going to be screaming down my neighborhood as they took over Germany. Um, they exist today. They're alive. Their mission is to carry out massive offensive operations using combined arms, uh, you know, tactics um, to fight the war that we're no longer capable of fighting, that NATO cannot fight. Um, so, you know, we, we, we could see NATO making all these. NATO can't afford half the projects that they're, they're talking about. Where are they going to get the money? To pay for this. They can't even build their own militaries. They're talking about building greater alliances. Um, and the rest of the world isn't necessarily ready to rush into this. I mean, look, you want to bring India into the quad? Then why are we talking about sanctioning them for buying S-400 missiles? Um, India is not going to go along with that sanctioning. That's uh, just, you know, we don't know how to interact with the world. We dictate, uh, but the world isn't ready to, re isn't willing to receive that dictate anymore. South Korea has its own ideas on peace in the in the Korean Peninsula, um, you know, but we want to, you know, totally disregard the South Korean approach and say, no, South Korea must go with our approach of pressuring China to pressure North Korea. South Korea is not willing to do that. We speak of a unified alliance against North Korea, Japan and South Korea and the United States. Japan and South Korea don't get along. They don't like each other. I mean, this is the reality. So, you know, Biden can sit there and work with NATO to build up these different alliances. They don't exist. They don't function and they can't function. They will never function. Um, you know, this this is the reality. Look, Biden had a, had a speech yesterday, talked about infrastructure development here in the United States. We're going to spend close to, you know, $3 trillion or $2.5 trillion for in, infrastructure development. At the same time, Biden is having a conversation with um, the, the, the British about uh, coming up with an global infrastructure development plan designed to counter the Chinese uh, Belts and Roads initi Initiative. Um, bad news, Biden. China's been doing BRI since 2013. Um, they are eight years ahead of you. They've invested trillions of dollars that you will never catch up with this investment. They have inroads everywhere. You will never catch up to this. You can't even fund 2.5 trillion in the United States. There's no guarantee Congress is going to go along with the totality of this package. Um, I'm sure some of it will go forward, but at what speed, at what pace, at what success? Because this is political. China doesn't operate on the political. They don't. They, domestic politics does not play in. China operates on geopolitical realities, and their whole approach in dealing with the rest of the world is a realistic approach based upon the needs of the other partner, 
not the political desires of the people pushing those policies. Um, China, during the time that, you know, it, it, over the past, uh, you know, 15 years, they've brought 900 million people out of poverty. 900 million people out of poverty. They're in the middle class now. China has this, this economic engine that can do everything Biden thinks he's going to be able to do. Biden wants to invest $2.5 trillion into an infrastructure project that's supposed to revive the American economy, get the engine going. Um, China's already done that. Their engine's chugging along on eight cylinders, maybe 12 cylinders. It's a powerful engine. Uh, and, and we're not going to catch up. That's just a sad fact. Uh, and, and so that, that's, that's how I feel about you know, what we're doing with Russia and China. A lot of bluster. A lot of bluster. Uh, our, our, our bluster with Russia deals with trying to reinvigorate a NATO that will never be reinvigorated. NATO could spend all its money, all the money it wanted to in the world to try and rebuild its military. It won't be able to defeat Russia on the field of battle. Now, the Russian military is not big enough to you know, push through to Berlin anymore, to push through to Warsaw. They can make the Baltics disappear in six days. Um, and I'll tell you what, if the Ukrainians are stupid enough to launch an offensive in the Donbass, um, it's good enough to take Kiev. So, um, you know, these, these are the reality, and we don't have any counter except nuclear weapons. This is the thing that we are promoting this kind of conflict. Um, and yet, if that conflict ever occurs, we don't have any recourse except nuclear weapons. And that's, uh, that's the frightening thing because we continue to uh, delude ourselves into believing that uh, nuclear wars can be contained. Uh, we, we, we see that by the, the fact that we just deployed a low-yield nuclear warhead on a, um, on a Trident submarine. Uh, that's a tactical weapon. So now we have our submarine-launched ballistic missiles ready to launch a low-yield nuclear warhead to respond to Russian aggression. Where? Baltics, Poland, and Ukraine? Do we think that we can fire a nuke, escalate to de-escalate? No, we fire a nuke against the Russians. They're coming at us with everything. That's general you know, nuclear exchange, and the world ends instantly. Um, and that's the danger. We have, we have policy formulators who are very unrealistic in their approach, um, unrealistic in their expectations, and um, ignorant about the consequences of failure. Because we will fail because our policies are unrealistic, unachievable, unattainable. The same thing with China. Um, you know, we're not going to beat them economically, not right now. That doesn't mean they can't be beaten. Doesn't mean that if we didn't, uh, you know, retool our approach, that we couldn't come up with an effective counter to limit Chinese hegemony, uh, to 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 stake out an American position. But we're trying to achieve global dominance as if China doesn't exist. And I'm sorry, China does exist, and they've been existing um, for for some time, and they're doing a pretty good job. Um, they're doing a better job of it than we are, and so. Again, unrealistic expectations that are politically motivated. Remember, everything that's happening in the United States is not driven by legitimate national security needs. There is no legitimate national security need for NATO. There's none. There's no national security need for us to uh, come up with a counter to Belts and Roads in, uh, initiative to, to build a quad to confront China uh, in, in, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, these play to political expectations here at home. The politicians are feeding off of this. They're allowing domestic American politics and their own political ambition to define 
America's role in the world. The problem is politicians lie, mislead the American public. You see this daily with the new, with the way that we sell things to the world. Um, you know, how we emphasize certain things, then de-emphasize others. Uh, so the American people are, you know, watching the news, listening to politicians, thinking there's a certain, you know, world uh, reality that doesn't exist. The reality is completely different and uh, never the two shall meet. So it's, it's, it's a very dangerous situation because we are going to fail. And when we fail, uh, the only recourse is military and our military is not that good anymore. And therefore, the only thing we have left is nuclear weapons. And um, if you believe that you can win a nuclear war, then basically you're inviting global destruction because no one can win a nuclear war. Yeah, I, I would just uh, remind listeners again, I'm, I'm halfway through your book, Scorpion King, which was uh, republished, uh, updated uh, with an expanded edition, I think, last year on nuclear war weapons and, and policy. And I, I would say, honestly, it's an easy and great read. And I was I've been uh, engulfed by it, uh, especially, you know, when you discuss the first Soviet nuclear test in Semipalatinsk, uh, Kazakhstan. I've lived in Semi for, for years. I, I recently uh, left and moved back. But I've been to ground zero uh, on the polygon, and it's quite a remarkable uh, uh, experience. You've also been writing uh, some op-eds. Recently, you touched on the toxic legacy of nukes uh, and, and nuclear testing. As we saw recently, uh, the dust, a dust storm from Sahara blow radioactive dust uh, into Europe, which was a result of uh, French weapons testing in the 1960s. Uh, as well, I think tomorrow, the uh, world powers are meeting virtually to discuss uh, the U.S.'s return to the Iran deal. And uh, you mentioned Britain as well. I, I, I had just read recently, Britain is upping its nuclear warhead uh, count. <laughs> so uh, things aren't looking good for, for, from that perspective. Uh, I don't know. Do you have anything, um, any other final thoughts? Uh, well, let's talk, about, let's talk about what the British are doing. And, and, and again, why, why history? I mean, one of the, um, you'll, you'll see when, as you read the book, uh, The Scorpion King, or Scorpion King, that um, you know, one of the, the best arms control decisions ever made was um, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty of 1972. Because prior to that, we, we in the Soviet Union were just basically coming up with better ways to, to, to you know, destroy rubble. Um, you know, we were going to MERV this and multiple warheads this. We're going to build bigger missiles here. We were going to build you know, counterforce missiles and then counter-counterforce missiles. And we had different strategies for, for, for destroying each other. Um, and then we started to get into this insanity that we're going to build missile defense systems, which means, you know, basically we're putting in place modern equivalents of the Maginot Line. Um, and as you know, fixed defenses never survive. You come up with a better offense. And it was just going to be a never-ending cycle of, of building bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And both sides realized that this was stupid. This was wrong. Um, they also both at that point in time realized how close they were to destroying the world. And so both sides embraced the notion of mutually assured destruction. That means that nuclear weapons exist. They exist to deter the other side from using them uh, because both sides are now armed with the certainty that if nuclear weapons were ever used, you would be destroyed. And the thing that made that possible was saying, okay, you can have one missile defense system or, or one or two uh, at, at, at near your national 
command center or another place. So the Russians put it around Moscow. We put it around our missile fields. And then we both sort of just allowed them to deteriorate. Uh, there's no real effort to defend. There was no real effort to defend. And as a result, we, we unleashed the potential of disarmament. Because now that you have mutually assured destruction, uh, that's a premise that neither side can willingly embrace. <laughs> and so it is, well, these are expensive. Why don't we get rid of them? And we saw you know, the Strategic Armed Limitation Treaty became the Strategic Armed Reduction Treaty. Um, we had the INF Treaty. I was one of the lead inspectors in that, uh, where we eliminated entire classes of, of missiles. And we were headed in that direction before Bill Clinton decided that Russia was no longer worthy of real arms control. And we, we deviated from that path. But for a brief, shiny moment, we had the potential for disarmament. Um, now, today, you know, we withdrew uh, under George uh, W. Bush, we withdrew from the ABM treaty. And we've been installing ballistic missile defenses. And the one thing that um, history will show is that uh, Russia can not only build missiles that are as good as ours, but they can build things that are better than ours. Um, we, you know, we end up chasing the Russians. Uh, you know, there was a missile gap, not the ones that were sold by the United States where the Russians had missiles and we didn't. There's a missile gap where we had missiles and the Russians did. And the Russians reversed that until they had, you know, the most capable ICBMs in the world um, not that, we, that we couldn't match. And now we started putting in ballistic missile defense systems and the Russians are, you know, matching us and doing better to the point that um, there's real doubt that some of the uh, 1970s and 80s era weapons would be able to penetrate uh, Russia. And here we have the British saying, rather than the British, you know, the British are saying, well, we, we're spending all this money on Trident missiles and stuff, rather than saying, wow, why don't we go back to the lessons that we learned in the late 1960s, 1970s, that this is stupid, a waste of money. Why don't we negotiate away this weapon so we don't have to build a new generation of weapons, et cetera. And why don't we get rid of missile defenses? Um, you know, because it's they don't work, uh, because all they do is lead people to do what the British did. They said they need more warheads so that they can have a viable nuclear deterrent uh, to offset Russia's advantage in missile defense. That, that that's meaningless because if you are ever using nuclear weapons, it does it's all over anyways. The world's ended. The second you talk about launching, you're saying I am ending humanity now, right now. Um, and so, you know, that's the inanity of this, that the British are actually embracing a policy that promotes global destruction, because that's the only outcome there can be. There's no deterrence. They already have deterrence. They want the missiles so that they can defeat the Russians, not to deter the Russians. Um, that, that, that's that's the insanity of what's what's going on in the world today. Um, you know, and the United States is falling in, in line. You know, we're, we're talking about spending, you know, trillions of dollars to upgrade our uh, strategic nuclear deterrence. The Russians are upgrading theirs, you know, and it's just this vicious cycle, a new arms race that can only have, you know, one of two outcomes. Uh, you know, we're either going to eventually use them and it's over. And as, as, as we talked about earlier, there's a lot of things going on geopolitically. Um, that could lead to the inadvertent use of nuclear weapons, or at some point in time, we're going to mature as, um, as, as societies and realize, as we did 
back in the 1970s that these are weapons that are better uh, when they're being eliminated than they are when they're being built. Um, I'm an optimist. I'd like to believe that that is what we can do, but we got to get through this period of time right now. And this is the danger of the Biden administration because they live in a fantasy world. They live in a world where they believe they can dictate outcomes. Those, those days are gone. They can't dictate outcomes. Not only that, they've artificially elevated expectations to the point where if we don't meet those expectations, um, then we'll have to escalate. And the only form of escalation we have is nuclear weapons. So the, the, the Biden administration, I view, is one of the most dangerous presidential administrations in modern time, far more dangerous than the Trump administration, far more dangerous. And I thought Trump was pretty, pretty wild at some, at some point now, but Biden is far more dangerous than that because uh, he is boxing himself in uh, to you know, self-created policy traps that are political in nature. And American politicians never have the courage to allow their political fortunes to be cast aside for the betterment of the American people. They will always double down for their own political benefit, even if the cost uh, that, that will be paid by the American people and the world is great. All right. The, 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 the first time I ever heard the, the, the Chinese uh, saying, I think it's Chinese, may you live in interesting times, was uh, in graduate school uh, in, in Switzerland. And as you said, I, I really hope that we don't get to that you know, red button. Uh, I hope things, as you say, somehow uh, we get through this mess that we're in now, and I'm sure it'll take, take some time. Uh, so I hope we get, it's, it's like a historical cycle. So I hope we get through this without launching uh, the nukes. Where's the best place for, for people to follow your work? I know you're on Twitter. Yeah, my daughter got me to sign up for Twitter. I'm not, I'm not the world's greatest uh, social media person, but um, I think Twitter, that, that's, my, uh, that's my sole um, interface. Uh, I publish my articles on that. Um, I try to respond to, to people if they ask, um, you know, uh, you know, legitimate questions. Uh, um, I, I, I do my best to to respond. So it's um, that's as good as any uh, to do that. And then, of course, I um, I, I, I publish regularly with um, RT. Um, and so, you know, you, I, I have a whole host of things that I've published on RT that uh, are accessible uh, if people are interested in that. And um, I'll continue to write and um, we'll we'll see. All right, I'll include all the links in the description. I highly recommend Scott Ritter's work, uh, his books, especially the, the most recent, uh, Scorpion King. And I commend the brave stands uh, you've, you've made against the, the unjust wars and corruption. And thanks for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you very much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.